Turn with me to the book of Exodus again. Exodus chapter 20. Hanging on the wall in my study are pictures of some of my favorite places in this area. Some are photographs, exact representations of those places. Others are paintings, um, which might as well be photographs for all their detail. But there is one drawing of Hurricane Ridge that I have that has almost no detail at all in it. In broad strokes and patches of color, the artist through the subtlety of simple suggestion, has captured some of the majesty and beauty of that Olympic ridge, some of my very favorite pictures. That's my hope for us in our study of Exodus this morning. I know that we're not going to begin to address the details that we're going to read this morning. Indeed, the very expanse of our text guarantees that it will be impossible to talk about the details. But still, I hope that by standing back and looking at the whole, by trying to put it in some perspective, we will grasp something of the beauty and the majesty and the importance of this text. Our text this morning is what the Bible calls the Book of the Covenant. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, immediately after the Ten Commandments, all the way over to Exodus chapter 24, verse 11. About four chapters in all. It begins with an introduction at the end of chapter 20 and concludes with a covenant ratification ceremony in the beginning of chapter 24. Obviously, it's too much time for us to even look at all the details at all, in fact, it's such a long section, I've decided to read it bit by bit as we go along and have some few comments about each part. But let me just say that uh, there are two lessons that I want us to learn from this this morning. And I've tried to make them as easy as I could to remember. The first lesson from our text is this. God's law defines righteousness. If that sounds familiar to you, that's because that was the first point last week as well. But see, the subject is the same. What's the role of the law of Moses in our life? There's a long tradition of dividing up the law into three parts. The moral law, or Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law about all the sacrifices and worship, and then the civil law, the case law. That tradition is outlined quite nicely in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a great statement. But frankly, I don't see that particular division of the law in the Bible. And this book of the covenant is a good example of the problem with that idea. For this contains all three of those elements, the commandments, the ceremonial law, the civil law, all woven together in this book of the covenant. This book of the covenant is part of a unified law along with the rest of the law, especially the Ten Commandments, for it is an unpacking of the specific meaning of those Ten Commandments, which then can be applied to other situations. 
That doesn't mean it's easy for us to understand what to do with all of this and how to apply all of this. In fact, it's very difficult for we live in a much different time and circumstance. But this whole law is profitable to us for it helps us to define righteousness, to sort out right from wrong. Now, in this book of the covenant, there's an opening section right at the end of chapter 20, and there's a closing section right at the end of chapter 23. But, but the main part of the book of the law begins with chapter 21, and that's where I want us to start. And then there are six sections of, 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 of laws, of commands, uh, beginning with chapter 21. So let's, let's read it in portions. First of all, in chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, we have some laws about the caring for servants. Let me read chapter 21. These are the laws that you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. If he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, and I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he shall be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she shall not go free as men's servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to, to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her rights of, the rights of honor. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is free to go without any payment of money. Because of our history of slavery in America, when we read this first section, we probably all cringe. Is it possible that the Bible teaches slavery? Well, yes and no. Here we find a system of servitude that certainly can be called slavery. The Jews were allowed to buy and sell servants, and people could sell themselves into slavery and indentured servitude to pay off their debts. And if we're honest, once we get over the emotion of the word, there's, a lots, of, there's lots of servitude still around in the world, even in this country of ours. Ask the lifelong employees of some small town mill that has suddenly sold, t taken its business overseas and left the town totally devastated. Or ask the former Enron employees, or ask the 25,000 General, uh, General Motors workers who found out this week that they're losing their jobs and pensions and all. There's plenty of servitude to go around. But in the law of this book of the covenant, God provides some safeguards for servants. Masters were forbidden to treat their servants like slaves. Alec Motier points out that the Hebrew has no vocabulary of slavery, only of servanthood. A servant became a member of the extended family and the covenant community through circumcision. So we see here one could only be in involuntary servitude for six years, and then he had to be set free. Only by a voluntary commitment that he made could he continue to serve that master. And there were special protections for women servants. They couldn't just be used and abused and then turned out with nothing and no rights. You see, even for our 21st century life, this law helps us to define righteousness. 
Well, let's keep reading. The next section has some laws about compensating personal injuries. Chapter 21, verse 12, all the way down to the end of the chapter. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is free, he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. Anyone who attacks his father or mother must be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. If men quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or his fist and he does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held responsible if the other gets up and walks around outside with his staff. However, he must pay the injured man for the loss of his time and see that he is completely healed. If a man beats his male or female servant with a rod and the slave dies, as a direct result, he must be punished. But, if he is, but he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two since the slave is his property. If, a man who, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, there is, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands or the court allows. But if there's serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. If a man hits a manservant or maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let his servant go free to compensate for the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a maidservant or, maid, or manservant or maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten. But, if the, owner of the, bull will, but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has the habit of goring, and the owner has been warned but has not kept it pinned up, and it kills a man or woman, the bull must be stoned, and the owner also must be put to death. However, if payment is demanded of him, he may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. This law also applies if the bull gores a son or daughter. If the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull must be stoned. If a man covers a pit or digs one and falls and fails to cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must pay for the loss. He must pay its owner, and the dead animal will be his. If a man's bull injures the bull of another, and it dies, they are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had the habit of goring, yet the, master, the owner did not keep it pinned up, the owner must pay animal for animal, and the dead animal will be his. Laws about compensating personal injuries. Violence and injury have been part of every society since sin entered the world. So here the law addresses some, how some of those issues are to be resolved, including violence between people in general, Violence within families, violence towards servants, injuries incurred by innocent bystanders, injuries caused by animals out of control, injury, injuries, injuries to your animal by, animal by someone else's animal. These are very pertinent issues even in our day. Our courts are filled with cases trying to discern what is right and fair in such cases. We won't discuss all these things, but let me mention a couple of points of interest in this section. Notice that the law makes a distinction between murder and accidental death and manslaughter. Those kind of distinctions have to be made if justice is to be done in society. Also take note of the phrase eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Sometimes that concept has been made to sound barbaric. It's been made to sound barbaric. But in reality, 
its punishment, it, it, its, its purpose was simply to make sure that the punishment fit the crime. Someone was not to be executed for some small crime just because nobody liked him. Alex Moyer writes that when English law hanged a person for stealing a sheep, it was not because the principle an eye for an eye was being practiced, but because it had been forgotten. Of course, as Jesus made clear, it's a principle of civil justice, not of personal revenge. These verses have become important in the modern abortion debate. They do not address the question of a woman choosing abortion per se, but they do seem to address the seriousness of injury to an unborn child. Though there's some uncertainty about how to interpret these verses, it appears that violence that results in the, in the death of that fetus is considered to be killing a human life. Once again, these commands don't address every situation, and they're often difficult for us to know how to apply. Nevertheless, the law helps us define what righteousness looks like in regard to personal injuries. Well, the third section here is our laws, is laws concerning the protection of personal property, chapter 22, the first 15 verses. If a man steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. A thief must certainly make restitution, but if he has nothing, he must be sold to pay for his theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in his possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, he must pay back double. If a man grazes his livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in another man's field, he must make restitution from the best of his own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes, so that it burns uh, shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if he is cost, must pay back double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges to determine whether he has laid his hands on the other man's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which someone says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to his neighbor. If a man gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to his neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other's property. The owner is to accept this, and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, he must make restitution to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, he, by a wild animal, he must bring in the remains as evidence, and he will not be required to pay for the torn animal. If a man borrows an animal from his neighbor and is injured or dies while the owner is not present, he must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the cost. Laws concerning the protection of personal property. In every society, whether primitive or sophisticated, theft always seems to be a problem, doesn't it? That's why one of the commands said, you shall not steal. And that's why this section unpacks how stealing is to be addressed, especially in Israel's 
agricultural context where livestock represented a man's greatest wealth. These many laws about stealing provide some strong basis for application in other situations. Just one thing I want to note about this section, which is really not about stealing per se, it's about the thief himself. According to chapter 22, verse 2 and 3, if a thief breaks in during the night and gets killed by the resident defending his home, the one who killed him is not to be charged. But if a thief breaks in during the day when he can be identified and punished properly, the homeowner will be considered guilty of bloodshed if he kills him. Interesting. Even in the commission of a crime, of theft, the life of the criminal still matters. God's law carefully draws some important distinctions which help us to define righteousness. Well, the fourth section, as we read through this book of the covenant, uh, it contains laws concerning social responsibility. Picking up in chapter 22, verse 16, down through the end of the chapter. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give him to her, he must still pay the bride, pri bride price for virgins. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender, charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, remember it, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Do not blaspheme God or curse the Lord of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me in the eighth day. You are to be my holy people, so do not eat the meat of animals torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Laws concerning social responsibility. This is a list that seems almost like a random command of lists, but two things, a, command of, a random list of commands. But two things stand out here, I think. The fact that God expects to be the center of his people's corporate life. He will not tolerate sorcery or idolatry or blasphemy. He lays claim to the first of everything, and he's worthy of it, for he's the Lord. And then secondly, that God cares about the poor and the powerless in society. Here he specifically mentions widows and orphans and aliens and the poor. For example, you can't charge interest if your poor neighbor needs a loan. That's not a profit-making venture. That's helping your neighbor. Here God promises to hear the cries of those in distress and bring distress back on the heads of those who oppress them. We often sing Psalm 10, a prayer that God would just do that. O oh Lord, please now arise. O oh God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the suffering poor, the humble of the land. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand. Break the arm of wickedness. 
For you, Lord Eternal King, hear your children's cry of distress. And Jesus reminds us that God has not laid aside these concerns in this day. So this law helps us to define righteousness in regard to our social responsibility. Well, the fifth section of this book of the covenant contains laws concerning the dispensing of justice. Chapter 23, the first nine verses. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong when you give testimony in a lawsuit. Do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who, ha who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. And do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens, because you were aliens in Egypt. Laws concerning the dispensing of justice. These verses are almost a commentary on the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness. Here we see some of the many ways that command might be violated. People feeling the pressure to follow the crowd to say what the majority want them to say as they bear witness. Or people feeling sympathy for the poor and wanting to bring testimony to help them though it may not be exactly right. Or others feeling anger toward an enemy or a stranger and see an opportunity to testify against him and hurt him. Or others might be lured into false testimony by, uh, the, by the enticement of a bribe. But God demands justice in the dispensing of, uh, of judgments. As Peter N. says so pointedly, God's people are called upon to do what is right, not what feels right. So God's law calls us to love justice as we seek to define righteous behavior. Well, finally, the sixth section of this law of the covenant has to do with laws concerning the celebrating of holy times. Picking up in chapter 23 with verse 10 and reading down to 19. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day you do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you, do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the Feast of Harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your fields. Celebrate the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in your crops from the fields. Three times a year all the men are to appear before the sovereign God. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. 
Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Laws concerning holy times. The fourth commandment concerning the Sabbath, God lays claim to his people's time. Here we see just how extensive that claim really was. It was not just observe the seventh day of the week as a Sabbath rest. God also required Israel to observe every seventh year as a Sabbath rest. And though this text does not mention it, after seven cycles of seven years, that is after 49 years, the 50th year was to be a year of jubilee wherein all debts were forgiven, all servants were set free, and all land was returned to its original owners. In addition to this Sabbath schedule, God commanded three special celebrations every year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread associated with the Passover, the Feast of Trumpets, which included the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. God owns our time. And the really interesting thing about all this is the rationale for it. It's not just that God says, you look tired, you need a rest. No, God was concerned for the land taking a break. He was concerned that the poor have fields where they can harvest the volunteer uh, volunteer crop. He was concerned that the animals have a feast on what was left over in those fields. You see, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's about him, not us. And so in his law, we learn how to reflect his righteousness and his creation and in our schedules. Now, I know we haven't even begun to discuss all these verses we've read. They, they demand a lot of reflection if we would understand them and apply them to our time. Oh, but do you see there's a beauty in this law which God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai? No wonder David sang, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. I've got to think about this. No wonder the Apostle Paul said, all scriptures God breathed. And it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. God's law defines righteousness. That's the first point we need to learn from the Book of the Covenant. But that's not the end of the matter. There's a second truth for us to consider. Anybody want to guess what the second point is? Only Jesus can make you righteous. As I said last week when we had that same second point, there's nothing in this text that explicitly says that, but the rest of the Bible demands that we teach that. Only Jesus can make you righteous. So think carefully with me for these last few minutes as we try to take this book of the covenant and put it in a whole perspective of the whole Bible. The first thing I want you to see is that in this book of the covenant, God is indeed making a covenant with Israel. That's not just a cutesy name. God is making a covenant with Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. These commands which we just read and discussed, these six sections, are bracketed by two sections, one at the beginning and one at the end. Chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, and chapter 23, 
verses 20 to 38. Let me read those, even though they're a bit lengthy, let me read them. Right after the Ten Commandments, before chapter 21 starts, we have this little introduction. 20, 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods to be alongside of me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it up with dressed stones or you will defile it. For you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up on my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. Okay, there's a little introduction. And then we have six sections of laws that we read. And then go to the end of chapter 23, you find the conclusion of this book of the law, beginning with verse 20. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since, your, since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and will bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate to the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. I know these passages are lengthy in themselves, but in one way, these two passages at the beginning and the end of this book of the covenant are very much alike. Both of them say two things. Both of them define what Israel's loyalty to God is to look like, And both of them define what God's loyalty to Israel will look like. Both of them have those two sections. Or to put it in more familiar terms that we're used to hearing, both of them lay obligations on the Israelites, and both of them make promises of God's faithfulness to the Israelites. So these obligations include not having other, any other gods, worshiping God only in the way he commands, and not tolerating any idolatry. And the promises that God makes include, I will bless you, I will protect you, your enemies will be my enemies, I will give you the land I promised, I will drive out your enemies before you, and I will prosper you in that land. 
Now, folks, this is covenant language. God is making a covenant with his people. Obligations and blessings. Promises, warnings. God is making a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. That's what all this book of the covenant is about. If there's any question about that, as we go to the last little section in chapter 24, what do we find there? A covenant ratification ceremony. Let me read it, the first 11 verses. And God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nabab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. He set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nahab, Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. After God had spoken all of these things, all of this book of the covenant, he said to Moses, now I want you to write this all down. And he did. And then he told Moses, I want you to read it to the people again. Moses read it to the people. And then the people responded. And in one voice they promised, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And so Moses had the young men sacrifice some bulls. He took half of the blood in a bowl and sprinkled it on the altar. And he took the other half and he began to sprinkle it on the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. The book of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 9. actually gives us a little bit more detail. Let me read chapter 9, verse 19 and 20. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. Make no doubt, make no, make, there's no doubt about it. Make no mistake. God established a covenant there at Mount Sinai. It was an official document, it was read, the people responded and agreed, we will obey this. And then Moses sealed the covenant with blood. He took some hyssop branches and he tied them on a stick with red cord and he dipped that in the, can you imagine this happening this morning? Take a, a bowl of blood and he dipped it and he walked around and he sprinkled blood on everybody. Everybody got doused with blood. Then forget this, I don't think.
God established his covenant. A covenant in blood. But folks, beautiful as that law was, sealed as that law was, there were some things inadequate about that covenant. For one thing, probably the most important thing, it didn't really provide for the forgiveness of sins very well. We see it right here in chapter 23. As God outlines our obligations to listen to and follow the angel of the Lord, who's going to work out all these wonderful covenant blessings, he says, pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. And sure enough, you can read through the law and you find that God provided in the law an atoning sacrifice for unintentional sins of ignorance. But there was no atonement for willful, rebellious sin. Take him out and stone him to death. There was no atonement. There was no forgiveness. Take him and execute him. That's what happened. Israel, who had promised to keep this covenant, they broke it. We'll see it just very soon. They broke it before God had even finished it. The incident of the golden calf. In fact, much of the rest of the Old Testament is a record of the prophet warning the people against breaking this covenant with God and the people continuing in disobedience and God finally bringing judgment on them. You see, as wonderful as this covenant that God made with Moses, this book of the covenant, this law of Moses, as wonderful as it was, it was never able to make them righteous. It only condemned them. It was never able to forgive their sin and change them. And folks, it can't make you righteous either. It can't make you righteous either. But you see, that's not, that was not God's purpose for this law. God had promised his people righteousness by faith as a gift of grace. He made that promise, that covenant of grace with Abraham over 400 years before all this happened. Perhaps you remember that covenant inauguration ceremony. We've talked about it before in Genesis chapter 15. God told Abraham, this was a standard covenant-making procedure, God told Abraham, I want you to take these animals and I want you to slaughter them and I want you to put them in pieces, half the pieces here and half the pieces over here and slaughter the next animal. Put half here, put half here. Make a path lined with these pieces of slaughtered animals. So Abraham went about because God's going to make a covenant with Abraham and to make this path and then the two people making the covenant walk between this and one says, I promise to do this. The other says, I promise to do this. And that was the plan. And so Abraham does all of this. And he puts all these pieces and he creates his path. And then the God doesn't show up right away. And the birds start coming. And Abraham's running around scaring the birds off. He's trying to maintain this where he can make this covenant with God. And finally he's so tired. God causes him to fall into a deep sleep. And he's over here in a pile on the ground. And God shows up like a flaming torch. And what happens? 
You know the story. It's one of the most beautiful things in Scripture. God walks the path. This path that said, if I break this covenant with you, may I be like these slaughtered animals cut to pieces. But while Abraham slept over here, God walked that path, made that covenant, sealed that covenant of grace by himself. By himself. all grace all of God all by God all for God all God's glory Abraham and his descendants would simply receive grace as a free gift by faith you see God's purpose in making this law was never to give people a tool in order to make themselves righteous by keeping the rules but simply to show them how desperate their situation was that they couldn't keep the rules so that they would receive Jesus when he came, so they would recognize and depend upon God's grace. That's how the Holy Spirit explains the meaning of this covenant made at Mount Sinai. You need to look this up and follow with me as I read Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 22. It's page 1130 in your pew Bibles. Galatians 15 Galatians 3, verse 15. Here the Apostle Paul is discussing the relationship between this covenant made at Mount Sinai and what happened earlier in the covenant of grace that God inaugurated with Abraham. Picking up Galatians 3, 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add a human covenant that has been duly, add to a human covenant that has been duly established. So it is with in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, here at Mount Sinai, remember, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depended on the law, then it no longer depended on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, that is Christ, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put in effect through angels by a mediator. Mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. That's what's going on here. God had promised grace. But in order that his people might see their desperate need of grace, he 
established this covenant of his law. But it was never intended to make them righteous. Only the grace which would bring Jesus would ever make them righteous. Let me illustrate. This is a hard thing to know how to illustrate, but let me try. Let's suppose you had an older brother. And when he turned about 13, he got real nasty and rebellious, got a bad attitude. He's irresponsible and wouldn't listen to anyone. I don't mean to pick on 13-year-olds, but there is a certain thing called 13-year-old disease. So one summer, long before you were in the family, one summer your parents sent him off to camp. A military-style boot camp. Going to teach this boy some responsibility. There he was awakened every morning at 4.30. He got up and spit shiny shoes and made his bed and he had to fall into formation out front at exactly 5 o'clock where they marched in military formation over to the chow hall and there he ate his breakfast. He had 10 minutes to do it and he couldn't speak a word while he ate breakfast. And then they marched to the next thing. Every part of their life was regimented, marching in formation. It was a military-style boot camp. And every infraction of any of the rules, which were many rules, got demerits, which had to be worked off on his only day of free time. Now, given that scenario, mom and dad sent him off to camp. Would it then be accurate for that son to conclude I can never go home. I can never be loved by my parents again. I can never please my parents unless I get up at 4.30 in the morning and march to breakfast and never say a word and keep all the rules. Or even more to the point, suppose that you were a needy orphan child who was later adopted into that family. And as you grew, you heard these stories about your brother going to the military boot camp for the summer. Should you then conclude that if you're ever going to know your parents' love and if you're ever going to be acceptable in their sight, if you're ever going to please them, you need to get a copy of those boot camp rules and learn to get up at 4.30 in the morning and spit shine your shoes and keep quiet during breakfast and march around the house and march to school, etc., etc., etc. Would that make sense? No. That boot camp did not make your brother a son to your parents, much less would it make you a son to your parents. In fact, you weren't even there. It was added to teach your brother responsibility and to make him learn to appreciate his parents' grace and provision and forgiveness. And that's the place of the law of Moses in God's great economy of grace. As Terence Fretham explains, Sinai is a covenant in the context of an existing covenant. Through the covenant made at Sinai, God's people would come to know the desperate sinfulness of sin. But only by the grace of Jesus would anybody ever be made righteous. Oh, but folks, even that's not the end of the story. God has done even more in our day. 
Later in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, God promised that one day he's going to make a new covenant. A covenant in which sin would be freely forgiven. A covenant in which his people would live, not just by some external rules compelling them to obey or die, but would live with his heart written on new receptive hearts and would have his own, his own spirit filling them and enabling them to love and serve him. And folks, the book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to explain that that's what has happened. Hebrews 8 says that the ministry of Jesus is superior because it's founded on a better covenant. And I quote, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, the covenant of Moses, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And in fact, Hebrews 9 tells us that this ritual that we read about of Moses sprinkling the blood on everything and everyone was pointing us to the necessity of the death of Jesus who would inaugurate this new covenant by the shedding of his own blood. And sure enough, that's what happened. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed as he was about to go to the cross, the night as he instituted the Lord's Supper, in which we confess and renew our hope in him again and again and again. What did Jesus say there? He said almost the same thing Moses said. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is shed on behalf of many for the remission of sin." Don't miss this distinction here. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. But Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out on many for the forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus can make you righteous. Only Jesus can forgive. I don't know if you followed all this. I know it's long and I know we've been all over the Bible, but folks, this you have to know. Though the law of Moses reveals God's righteousness to us, it is powerless to change us. And unfortunately, we have a built-in propensity to sin so the law only ends up condemning us. But God has now accomplished what he promised to Abraham and what he promised later to Jeremiah. God sent his son to fulfill the law, sent his son as the seed of Abraham to inaugurate a new covenant, much like the old, but radically new. And in this renewed covenant of grace, God promises forgiveness, and eternal life in Jesus requiring only that we believe in him, rest on his death and resurrection for our right standing before God, and turn from our own way and follow him. Whether you understand anything else or not this morning, that's what you need to know. Come trust in Jesus, take up your cross and follow him, for in Jesus 
God makes us righteous, forgives us, and gives us eternal life. So, what do we do with the law of Moses? How much of it applies to us? That's the big question, of course. Well, here's my bottom line answer. It all applies to us. It's all profitable for correction and training in righteousness. God's law helps us to define righteousness. But we're not under any of it. Not like Israel was. We're not under any of it. That law of Moses could not nullify the promises of God's grace made to Abraham. And God has now fulfilled those promises in Jesus by inaugurating a new covenant in his blood. So that now in Jesus, God's plan for our salvation has come into its fullness. And only he makes us righteous. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we talked this morning about one of the very most difficult things that we have to sort out in your word. Things that trouble lots of people. Things that whatever we know, we realize quickly we don't know at all. And so humbly, Lord, we would wade into this. But, oh, Father, I pray that we would not miss the significance of Jesus coming. I pray that we would see how wonderful and radically new it is that you have fulfilled the promises, that you fulfilled the law, and though the, and though the law continues to be of use to us, that you simply call us to trust and obey Jesus. Give us a heart to do that, for Lord, it's actually much easier for us to just have a set of rules and check them off and think that we're doing fine because we keep the rules. When in fact you want us to love you, and walk in fellowship with you and trust you and know the power of your spirit within us. May we not settle for anything less. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.